thank you to David and to the session uh, for the invitation to preach God's word this evening. It's always a real blessing to be back home, all right? I grew up here in Douglasville, just down the road. My parents still living in the house that I grew up in, and this is our home church. Uh, I still tell people that, uh, even though we moved on uh, a number of years ago and, and pastored in several different churches, this is home. Uh, and so it's always a blessing to be back home. Uh, two of my children were baptized at Grace. Uh, I really learned what it means to be a Reformed Presbyterian here in this church. And so you all have a special place in our heart. Uh, and I'm thrilled uh, to be able to open the word here uh, this evening. I preached my very first sermon from behind this pulpit. Uh, I hope that sermon never sees the light of day. Uh, and I'm sure it was long deleted from the websites. Um, but uh, right here, uh, and it was such a joy to see so many of your faces then and to see you here again this evening as we look to God's words together. So if you have your Bibles, please turn in them to the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, uh, I believe that's in the Pew Bible. It should be on page 852. Mark chapter 15, and we'll read together verses 1 through 15. And once you've made your way there, let me ask you if you'll join with me as we look to God in prayer and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, our prayer is simple. That's that you would come and by your spirit would you breathe upon the word that we might see and understand wonderful things from it. Write the truth of your law upon our hearts. Cause the seed of the word to be implanted deep into our souls that it might bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas 
instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Amen. And we praise God for this reading of his holy word. Well, do please keep your Bibles open and we'll seek with the Lord's help to work our way through this passage of scripture together. Uh, We've heard a lot, haven't we, about the 20 years of faithful ministry uh, that many of us Uh, All of us, in in some measure, have been a part of here at this church. And that is no small feat. 20 years uh, is a big thing to celebrate. Since the time Grace Presbyterian Church was particularized on September 15th, 2002, there have been 120 PCA churches that have closed their doors for the last time. Think about that. In 20 years, 120 PCA churches closed their doors. Others left to go to different denominations. Uh, Some of them merged with other churches because they weren't able to uh, sustain their own ministry by themselves. One of those churches that closed its doors was in my own presbytery. Uh, About a year ago, we dissolved a church. That church lasted roughly six years years. 20 years is something we ought to celebrate. The Lord's faithfulness has been evident in many ways. We've heard about them over the last few days. How many of you who were here at the beginning could have imagined all the things that the Lord would do in and through the ministry of this church, in and through your own lives, just 20 years ago when When my family and I, at the time, it was Michelle and two of our girls, Molly had not yet been born. When we left here in May of 2010 to take my first pastoral call in Columbus, Mississippi, and who knew where that was, right? Um, Grace Church was eight years old at the time. We went to a church that was 181 years old when we got there. Now that puts things into perspective, doesn't it? 20 years is something to celebrate. 200 years. How does a church endure that long? Well, Cliff told us this morning, didn't he, about various priorities and pursuits and perspectives that the church must have if she is to march, as we sang this morning, for all the saints, all the way to glory, if the church is to remain as a faithful lampstand, as Revelation uh, 1 and 2 and 3 tell us, if she's to be faithful and shine as a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we have to have particular priorities. And, you know, being the last one to speak this weekend, I was very fearful that everything would have been said. And in a sense, 
It has. Uh, but I want us to drill down a little bit deeper on one of those priorities that Cliff mentioned this morning. One feature that has undoubtedly characterized this church since its very beginning is bold, clear, powerful preaching of the person and work of Jesus Christ with a particular emphasis on the cross of Jesus Christ. Preaching that is centered at Calvary. I believe it is that commitment that has enabled this church to endure and indeed to prosper over these past 20 years. And I am convinced that if we are to celebrate another 20 or, Lord willing, if Christ tarries, 200 years of faithful ministry, then we must keep the cross of Jesus Christ, the atoning work of Christ as the central part of our message. Proclaiming Christ's precious cross is absolutely essential for the life, health, and longevity of the church. But you understand that preaching the cross of Christ is not something that we can take for granted. We should not assume that it will just happen. Oh, yeah, our preachers, they'll always preach Christ crucified and risen. There are countless churches in the graveyard of history who have died from a failure to proclaim Christ's precious cross. And you understand it only takes one generation, about 20 years, for a church to die because of a lack of faithfulness to cross-centered preaching. And so, beloved saints here at Grace Presbyterian Church, let me urge and exhort you to, as John said the other night, hold high standards, keep the gospel central, and demand that your ministers preach Christ to you. You must demand it of them because it's at the cross that we see the loveliness of Jesus Christ as our great Redeemer. This evening we're going to look at Mark chapter 15, a text that teaches us the cross-centered theology, particularly a doctrine at the very heart of the gospel, that of substitutionary atonement. What is atonement? It's, it's a word we hear often. We're good Presbyterian theologians, aren't we? But let me remind you what atonement refers to. It is the priestly work of Jesus Christ, whereby he removes the guilt and stain of our sins. He absorbs the unmitigated wrath of God, and he reconciles us to a right relationship with God, purchasing our salvation at the cost of his own blood. And he does it all by taking our place, hence the substitutionary nature of it. At its most basic level, this doctrine means that Jesus acted in our place to purchase our salvation. He lived the life that we failed to live, and he died the death that we deserve, the just for the unjust, 
numerous passages of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, of course, teach this doctrine. Just one to remind you of, 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might bring us to God. Amen. Well, here in our passage, we see Jesus is delivered over to the Gentiles in accordance with His own uh, his own prophecy, really, in Mark chapter 10, he is on his way up to Jerusalem with his disciples. His face is set like a stone to, uh, to go to the cross. And he tells his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Well, here, that is happening. Uh, the... Uh, the, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, deliver him up to the Gentiles, to one Pontius Pilate in particular. And he is the one who will have the last say from an earthly perspective on what happens to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see three words from the text uh, that, that highlight for us what's happening here. First is the word silence. We see the silence of Jesus and then secondly, we see that word substitute, where Jesus acts in the place of another. So silence, substitute, and then finally, we'll consider the suffering of Jesus. So silence, substitute, and suffering. First, look again at verse 1 with me as we see the silence of Jesus. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes, and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. The, uh, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, had met during the middle of the night. Morning has finally broken. And now they reconvene uh, to reach their final decision. They have declared that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy and therefore deserving of nothing but death according to their law. But, but they have a little problem here. They know that that charge won't stick with the Roman authorities. They need to bring a charge against Jesus that will satisfy the Romans, particularly that will satisfy Pilate. Now, who was Pontius Pilate? History tells us that he was a shrewd man. He was a despiser of the Jews. But ultimately... Pilate was a politician. That is, he knew how to read the room. He could take the temperature of the crowd and make decisions that would keep him in a position of power. The only principles that Pilate lived by were self-preservation and self-promotion. And you see that in the text in verses 10 and 15. Look at it again. On the one hand, verse 10, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. He found Jesus to be innocent of the charges that were brought against him. But verse 15 tells us what really ruled his heart, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate was a man-pleaser. He had no conviction. He had no backbone. He was spineless. And he only played to the crowd to get what he wanted. 
Now, Pilate's question to Jesus gives an indication of what the charges were that the Jews were bringing against him. Look at it. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what Pilate asks. Jesus had confessed to be the Messiah, which the Jews translated for Pilate. They, they helped him to understand what it means that he was claiming to be king. And of course, any claim to kingship means he's a rival to Caesar. They're, they're saying Jesus is setting himself up as a rival to Caesar, who we must give our allegiance to. This is high treason. This is rebellion against the emperor, is what the Jews are insinuating. And that is a crime punishable by death. Uh, the, the charge is essentially that Jesus is disturbing the peace of the Roman Empire. And by extension, he is now a threat to Pilate himself. Jesus' answer is found at the end of verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? And what does Jesus say? You have said so. Yes. Jesus is affirming what Pilate has said. He is a king. But he's not the kind of king that the Jews have made him out to be. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, we get a, a full understanding of what Jesus' kingdom is like. Here's what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus is a king. Indeed, he is the king. But the Jews didn't have eyes to see it. Pilate could not understand it. For as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. In verse 3 of our text, the chief priests seize an opportunity to make their accusations even stronger. Luke of course, tells us in a fuller description what they said. We, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He even stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Of course, they're lying about Jesus, aren't they? They're misrepresenting who he is and what kind of kingdom he possesses. And Pilate's not quite convinced by their words. He seems to understand something. He knows the Jews are jealous of Jesus, verse 10. But then he declares in Luke 23, I find no guilt in this man. He doesn't view Jesus as a threat, either to himself or to the empire at large, which is why he's willing to release Jesus. In verse 4, he asks Jesus once again, do you have any defense that you want to make? It's your right. Defend yourself. And look at verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Here, beloved, we witness the majestic silence 
of our Lord Jesus. Notice first that his silence has left Pilate stunned. He's, he believes Jesus is innocent, and yet he cannot fathom his silence. Why won't you defend yourself? Because that's what we would do, isn't it? Just imagine someone, uh, let's think of a sibling of yours, kids, one of your brothers or sisters accuses you of something. Eh, what are you going to do? You're going to rush into mom and dad. I didn't do it. And then they're going to say, just, just stop, stop defending yourself. No, but I didn't do it. Be quiet. And you can't stop defending yourself, can you? I think of when you've been wronged by someone else or false charges by a colleague have come up against you. What do you do? The natural inclination is to present your defense, present your case. But Jesus remains silent. Couldn't he have defended himself? Of course he could. He's innocent. And yet, the sinless, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God doesn't speak a word in his own defense. He is, of course, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But we must ask, why? With all of these false accusations leveled against him, he doesn't even acknowledge them. He could have, um, have mounted a defense that would have wiped away all of these charges, but why does he not respond? Well, it's because he must suffer. He must complete the mission the Father had given him to do. Peter gives us, I think, a little insight into this. It's amazing, really, that the verses just before this in Mark's gospel recount Peter's denial of Jesus. But then, a few decades later, Peter's writing his first epistle, in chapter 2, he says this, that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, as he's doing, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Do you see what Jesus is doing here in its silence? He is identifying with his people. He is at the beginning of, we might say, taking his people's sins upon himself in a legal sense for he will suffer and pay for them. And so he opens not his mouth. He could defend himself, yes, for he knew no sin, but he maintains his silence as he begins to bear your guilt and your condemnation as your substitute. The silence of Jesus, and then that brings us of course, to this word substitute. 
verse 6 tells us that Pilate had a, a custom of releasing one prisoner a year uh, at feast times. There, there was a particularly nasty fellow known as Barabbas. The text tells us he was a murderer and a villain. His crime uh, was against the Romans uh, during the insurrection. He had per- Perhaps he was the leader of this insurrection, and he had ended up murdering at least one individual, and here he is in Jerusalem awaiting the death sentence. This is not a nice guy. He's not someone that you would think the crowd would ask to be freed. So Pilate, convinced of Jesus' innocence, uh, but rather than just let him go, he wants to play the crowd a little bit. Surely they will choose Jesus. He's harmless. What has he done? Barabbas is this nasty murderer on death row. Pilate despised the Jews, don't forget that. By willingly offering up Jesus to death, he would be doing them a favor. And so he puts the option in their hands. He asked the crowd, you see it in the text, do you want for me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now imagine the shock and horror when the roar comes back from the crowd. Not him, but Barabbas. What's going on? Well, the chief priests, Mark tells us, are there doing the devil's work, stirring up the crowd into a frenzy, telling them just how dangerous this Jesus is. And so they start baying for his blood. And repeat again and again, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then look at verse 14, Pilate's next question. Why? What evil has he done? And yet they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, He delivered him over to be crucified. Here, Jesus is formally condemned by Pilate and delivered to execution. Substitution, that's the word we're considering. Earlier, we said that it's at the very heart of the gospel, and it's illustrated for us in a poignant way here. Barabbas is a murderer, and he walks free while Jesus... The sinless, innocent one dies in his place. Barabbas' name means something like son of the father. Now, there are some early manuscripts, I think it's of Matthew's gospel, uh, that say his name may have been Jesus Barabbas. So Jesus, son of the father. The crowd cries out for Jesus Barabbas instead of Jesus the Christ, the true Son of the Father. Here the great sinner is delivered from death as the sinless one takes his place. This is substitution. This is the very heart of the gospel. Beloved, you and I are the Barabbas, the guilty rebels who have despised God and His holy word. We've 
shaken our fist at him and said, we will not have you rule over us. We've rebelled in sin and we are deserving of condemnation. But God sent his only son to take your place and mine, to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin breaking. Let's not forget when we preach the cross, we must preach the, the reason for the cross. It's our sin. Our sin is ugly. It's not something that we can just dismiss with a wave of the hand. Sin is wicked. It's vile. It's deadly. Well, we were talking around lunch today, a few of us, about um, rat and mice infestations that we've had in uh, our various houses and what have you. And uh, one uh, of my children reminded me of when we had mice in our house in Asheville, when we lived there, I set a bunch of traps, of course, and, and caught them. And uh, it was probably a couple of weeks after I went back down under the crawl space to check out um, the, the traps, I'd forgotten about them. And then there was one mouse that was... Uh, David said it so beautifully, putrefying. There were maggots in it eating away the flesh. It's a disgusting picture, isn't it? That doesn't even begin to describe how sickening our hearts are with our sin. Our hearts are putrefying in sin. The wages of sin is death. This is why the cross is necessary. God's wrath must come down on the sinner. Pink described God's wrath as his holiness stirred into activity against sin. God's wrath must be turned away. Propitiated is the word. And beloved, that is the beauty of the gospel, of substitutionary atonement, because Jesus Christ stands in the place of wretched, rotten, ruined sinners like us to receive in himself the full fury of God's wrath against sin. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for wonderful, lovely people. Is that what the Bible says? No, he died for the ungodly. We don't like to hear that about ourselves, do we? You're ruined and rotten. Oh, don't tell me that, Pastor. Tell me that I'm a nice person. By grace, you have been saved. He's transforming you, right? you didn't begin that way. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He stood in the place of rebels as their substitute. He drank down the cup of God's wrath against sin so that you and I don't have to. Isn't that the theme of many of that we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. You know the rest. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 
Won't you bend the knee to this kind of Savior? One so lovely and precious that He gave His life for you. Is He not worthy of your wholehearted devotion? Well, finally, we see the word suffering. Silent substitute and lastly, suffering. Jesus suffers physically as the sin bearer. He suffered in his soul, to be sure, as he listened to the lies and the false accusations that were made against him. And that is real suffering. But he also suffered in his body. It was real, acute, painful suffering. And we must remember the takeaway here is that our sin is costly. There's a price to be paid for sin. And it's steep. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus was scourged. Uh, we probably know what this was like. We've heard stories about it before. The Roman soldier would take the whip that would be frayed out in different thongs and at the end of it would have either lead balls or bone shards and as uh, the whip came across the body, it would bruise the body and then as it was pulled back, it would rip the flesh. There were apparently no prescribed number of lashings and so sometimes the condemned would die through the beating or other times they would just be beaten until the soldier got exhausted. So here's Jesus. His body ripped to shreds. His suffering unfathomable. He doesn't look much like a king here, does he? Certainly not one in the eyes of the world. But didn't Isaiah tell us that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, but yet his suffering is not complete with the scourging. He'll be beaten, punched in the face by these soldiers. They'll mock him, and then he'll be nailed to a tree. Verse 15, he was delivered over to be crucified. Crucifixion was grotesque, and it was horrific as a means of execution, but it's here in the brutality and shame of the cross that we see the vile and heinous nature of our sin, that we see the price that has to be paid as He is nailed to a tree and becomes sin for us, as our sin is transferred to Christ at the cross. He does it so that you might receive the blessing of life everlasting by faith in Him. Dear friends, as we close, just a simple question for us to consider. Have you closed with Christ? Have you put your hope and trust in this King? Have you cast yourself upon His Mercy, have you come to him for cleansing for your sin? Because you understand his suffering is what you deserve. The scourging, the shame, the mockery, the nails, the darkness, and the death. 
And not just for a moment. It's what is rightly ours for all eternity. The sinfulness of sin. The wickedness of sin. The evil of sin is seen so clearly in the sufferings of Jesus. But He willingly endured for the joy that was set before Him. Endured the suffering and shame of the cross. He made Himself a substitute for all who will come to Him by faith. Have you come to Christ? If not, you must come. And you must come today. Do not wait till you clean yourself up. You'll never come. Don't wait until you get your life together. Don't wait for a crisis to come. And then, and then I'll turn to him. Don't wait till you're older. I'm going to live it up right now while I'm young. I'll, I'll come to Jesus a little bit later. Who are you to say that you have tomorrow? Come to Christ today. Hear his call. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come now. If you have come to Christ by faith, let me ask you, are you living wholeheartedly devoted to the one who loved you and gave himself for you? Or do you find that your love has grown cold for Him? Your devotion has grown weak? Perhaps you're entangled in some besetting sin that threatens to drag you down. Plead with Him. Plead with Him to renew your love. Beg of Him to stir your soul with holy fire that you may give to Him your life, your all. Plead with a heart for repentance and flee again to Christ who is ready, willing to embrace you. The preaching of Christ's precious cross is essential to the life health, and longevity of the church. Beloved saints of Grace Presbyterian Church, remain faithful to the proclamation of the cross of Christ, and you will shine as a light in the midst of this dark world. And our Lord will be pleased to use you to bless many souls for Christ's sake. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the reading and the preaching of your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us. We give you praise for Christ, such a blessed Savior, who stood in our place, taking the condemnation that we deserve, that we might have life and salvation in him. Thank you for our substitute for our Redeemer, and we plead with you to stir up our souls to love such a Savior with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.